And this, the 15th message that we've walked through in 1 Peter, I titled this one, United to Christ. And I, I want to go back to where we were last week to give some context of this passage. So if you look back in, if you have a copy of God's Word, and by the way, if you don't, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, we would love to give you one this morning. And so if you would just come see me before uh, you leave today, we would love to, uh, we'll gift you uh, with a Bible, a new study Bible. But in 1 Peter three seventeen, where we left off last week, uh, Peter said, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so what we were talking about last week is that God does sometimes will that his saints, his people, his church may have to go through persecution. I think God keeps us from much suffering and he keeps us from much persecution, but there are times where God wills that. And if he does will that, he, he does so for a loving purpose. And so what we talked about last week is how important it is in the midst of difficult times when you're going through suffering, not because you've sinned or done something wrong, but just because you've been trying to do what is right. Because you've been trying to love the Lord and love people. But even in the midst of that, you're persecuted. And it could be um, just even in your family circles where you're trying to do the right thing with, you know, a spouse or a sibling or, um, you know, someone uh, who's in that circle in your families or extended families or friends. And, and what you feel like is that in return you're receiving persecution. So what we talked about is how important it is to trust God during those times and also to hold to righteousness. That the words that we say and the actions that we live, they should be righteous. That we should not respond to them with hatred or malice, but with love. Just as Christ did to those who were persecuting him. And what we saw last week is that sometimes God actually uses our good behavior in the midst of persecution to convince some people of the truth of the gospel. And so I ended last week saying to those of you who are here, that what an honor it would be if we could identify with Jesus when we willingly suffer for doing good, and in that suffering, doing good in this world, we might be used to bring some people to God. That God might actually use our good behavior when we're being persecuted to convince either observers around us or even our persecutors of the gospel and to bring those who we see as an enemy to love Jesus. And so that idea that we could identify with Christ in that way, we could be united to Christ in that way, is the context of where we pick up today in verse 18 and going through verse 22. So if you're a note taker, if you picked up one of the worship guides this morning, there's an outline in your notes. If not, they're on the back table if you'd like to um, to see the outline and, and to actually use it. We're going to start with this life truth, which is this, that Christ lives in his people and compels them to his manner of life. This life is characterized by supreme affection for God 
and an uncommon love for all people. Christ lives in us and compels us to his manner of life if we're a believer. And what we see happening as Christ lives in us and compels us is that we have a supreme affection for God. And by supreme, I mean that our affection for God is higher than any other affection in our lives. And that we have an uncommon love for all people. That people notice there's a difference in the way that we love others. Even our enemies. Even those that we would hate in our flesh. We love them in an uncommon way. And because of that, people see Christ in us. So this life truth, I have two passages of Scripture in mind. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, or you can make a note of them and read them later. But I have two passages of Scripture in mind. One of them is Galatians 2.20. And in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I, I've been crucified with Christ. That's how he described the Christian life. I want you to think about how you would describe the Christian life. How would you describe what it means to live for Jesus? Well, how would you describe what it means to be a Christian? Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is how Paul described being a Christian. I would challenge us a bit, and I, I don't I don't know that this is necessarily for Agape or those families who are here today or anything like that, but I do think that living in the South, where religion and being a Christian is such a part of the culture, and and it's it's almost for some people like an identifying mark of living in this part of the country, that I go to church and I consider myself a Christian But I challenge whether we would identify or whether we would describe the Christian life in this way. It is looking at your life and saying, I don't actually live anymore. It's not about me. It's, It's not about what I want. It's not about how I think. It's It's not really about how I feel. It is about... Jesus, I've died. I've died to those things. And it is now Christ who lives in me, and he lives through me. And so my life is marked by that, that Jesus is alive in me. Christ is not merely an example for us to follow, although he is. But the Christian life is not just, okay, here's Jesus, and here's how he lived. Now do your best to do that. It is that Christ is living through his people, that he is an active presence in those who are Christians. And he shows his life through our life. That people today can see Jesus because he lives in us. And he is continuing his mission in the world through us. That's the picture. The second idea that I have in mind in this life truth is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, Paul, again, in a different letter, describes the Christian life this way. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. And he died for all, that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's another way that Paul described being a Christian. What does it mean? It means that my whole life is controlled by the love of Jesus. 
constrained, compelled by the love of Jesus. Love for God and love for others. That Jesus actually exercises a constraining influence on the life of his people. For those who Peter called elect exiles, they've died. Life is not about them. Life is not just merely a series of decisions on what or who or when is best for them. They don't make decisions just thinking that way. And again, I just ask us to think about how our life looks as as believers. Because we all fall into that trap. We make decisions based on, okay, how's this going to impact me? How is this going to affect my family? How am I going to like this? Is this what's best? Is this going to get me where I want to be? And I'm not saying you can't ever think through those things or you can't ever ask those questions. What I am saying is that the driving force of our life is to ask things like, how is God's glory going to be best shown in my life? How is affection for God going to best be drawn out of me? Is doing this activity or going here or having this job or being with this person, is that going to be what really brings out affection for God in my life? Is that what's going to nurture in my life love for other people? And we spend time thinking about how do I best love and care for people made in His image, especially those in the church. So we're told that. Love everyone, especially those. Do good to everyone, especially those who are in the church. So if Christ lives through us, you know, like part of my job as a husband is that I could show my wife Jesus and vice versa. Your role as, as a parent, your role as children in a home, your role as friends, as co-workers, as strangers, is to show the life of Jesus in your life. That's how Paul described being a Christian. Even how to show Jesus to your enemies, to those who you hate or are angry at for some reason, you're called to show Jesus to them. An uncommon sacrificial love. And so I want us to see, looking in these passages from Peter, how Peter ties this exhortation for our life that it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil, how he ties that to the life that Jesus lived and that he still lives through us. That that thought is that sometimes I'm going to suffer in God's will for a greater purpose, how that's founded in the life of Jesus, that he lived on the earth and that he still lives through his people. So in your outline, let's look again, 17 and 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For, here's why, verse 18, here's why that's true, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So in your outline, Christ the righteous suffered sinful actions from the unrighteous in the will of God. 
Christ, who was the righteous one, suffered sinful actions from the unrighteous, but it happened within or in the will of God. So think about this because the gospel is astounding. The murder of Jesus on the cross was evil. It was a sin. That's why Jesus prayed for those who were nailing him to the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He prayed that for them as they were killing him. It was carried out. His murder was carried out by men with deception and hatred in their hearts toward him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. They slandered him. That was sin. But it occurred in the will of God. And it's not enough to just say God allowed it. Because sometimes when we say, well, God allowed that to happen, it means that God didn't want that to happen or plan that to happen, but he saw it coming and he allowed it. That's not how the Bible presents it. The Bible, especially even from the Old Testament all the way through, says that the sacrifice of Jesus was designed by God and planned by God before the foundation of the world. That's astounding. That's the mystery of the gospel. It's not simple, but we believe it by faith. That there are times where God wills persecution, even of his people, for his purposes. He did it with Jesus. It was sinful what happened to Christ. Yet God had planned to use that sin to save the whole world. To offer salvation to the whole world and to bring his people to himself. And we're saved by that reality. Like we can't, we can't just push that aside. Like we're saved by that fact. We're saved by the fact that God sometimes wills persecution for those who are doing good. And so because we're saved by that reality, we are often going to have to live in that reality if our life is united to Jesus. That there will be times where we're going to suffer for doing what is right. And it will happen within the purposes of God. Let's think a little bit more about what happened with Jesus. Christ the righteous suffered sinful actions from the unrighteous. It happened in the will of God. But he suffered well. In your outline, he suffered well. I want to remind you back to First um, Peter chapter 2. Maybe just a page over in your Bible. But back in First Peter chapter 2 in verse 21, Peter said, This, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he suffered well. And because of his suffering, we are healed. And, and while I certainly believe that means we're healed physically in eternity, and God, I still believe, does miracles on the earth and heals 
and intervenes in people's illnesses, although we know he doesn't all, he doesn't do that 100% of the time, but I still believe we pray and ask for those things that he still does them. But by his wounds, we will be healed physically for sure in eternity, but we're healed by more than, or we're healed from more than just physical ailments. We're, we're healed from a short-sighted, temporarily satisfying kind of life that is organized around ourself. Because that is a way to live. What's best for me? What do I want? What will I enjoy the most? You can live that way, and you may find it very satisfying, temporarily. But Jesus has healed us from that kind of life, because that type of life will end in destruction. And with no joy in eternity. Jesus has healed us so that we could lead a life that is much bigger and much grander and more universal and eternal. You have the opportunity to do good in the midst of suffering. You have an opportunity to do good in the midst of an evil world. You have an opportunity to show people Jesus and in that make an eternal impact. God lifts us up. He allows us to be made much of sometimes. You may have a career in which you're made much of. You may make a mark on the earth by your physical abilities or your mental abilities or your talents. And if God allows that to happen, praise to Him and may it bring Him glory. But the most impactful humans in human history, ultimately that impact is short. Eternal impact is living like Jesus and taking serious the gospel and showing people Christ that might lead them to salvation. That's an eternal impact. And Christ has healed us that we could live that way. When he suffered for doing good, he committed no sin. So he didn't sin out of that suffering. He didn't... He didn't meet their sin with his own sin. When he suffered for doing good, he did not deceive anyone. It is common for us when we are suffering, especially for doing good, to want to respond in anger and to meet sin with sin. And it is common for us to even try to deceive to avoid difficulty, to get out of suffering. Christ didn't do those things. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he was threatened, he entrusted himself to God. He didn't meet threats with threats. Anybody can do that. Anyone can respond to a threat with their own threat. But the uncommon way to live is to respond to threats trusting God and loving people. He bore our sins that we might die to what's common and live to what's uncommon. He suffered well so that we can suffer well when we're called to. He also suffered physically and spiritually. He suffered physically and spiritually. We know about the physical wounds of Jesus. You can think upon that and the cross and what happened to him. But it is not merely the physical sufferings of Jesus that saves us. It is not merely the physical pain that was inflicted upon him that saves us. It is, it is what happened to him that is not even readily visible 
that actually brings us salvation. First John 2, 2 gives us a big word and says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It means He is the atonement for our sins. It means that Jesus stepped in our place to receive our punishment, to atone for our crimes. To atone for something is to make up for what has been done. Jesus' sacrifice atones for us because He suffered God's wrath on our behalf on behalf of those who would believe. I'm going to pause for a moment and just ask you, have you ever have you ever been in a place where you've suffered someone's wrath justifiably? I was thinking about this today and and uh, this morning and this thing came to my mind and I my dad when I was growing up, my dad was he was not really the primary disciplinarian in the home. That was usually my mom. Um, that's not the way it should be, by the way. It was just the way that things kind of operated in our house. But my dad, you know, he disciplined me as a kid with, um, some type of physical discipline three or four times in my life. My mom probably three or four thousand times in my life, but my, my dad three or four times. But you know what? I remember those three or four times far greater than I remember the three or four thousand that my mom did. And, and so I was about eight or nine years old and I was visiting my grandmother and I was outside my grandmother's house and I found a hammer. And for some reason I thought, I wonder what would happen to her brick wall, uh, that, that, that led into her garage if I hit one of these bricks with a hammer. And guess what? It broke. And, and then I thought, well, that was kind of fun, I guess. And so I proceeded to bust with that hammer about the top 12 12 bricks on top of her wall. And Jason is giving a look like, why would you do that? And Jason, I have no earthly idea. I, I just know I was eight years old and I busted all of those bricks up. And I, I don't really remember thinking this is a horrible idea until I got to the end of it. And I got to the end of it and I thought, this, this wasn't good. And so, well, my dad, who was my grandmother's only son, my dad, loved his mom and he was a mama's boy and he took care of things around her house and so my dad um my dad noticed um a week or so later these busted up bricks and he asked my grandmother what happened and she said i have no idea i came out one day and they were all busted up and i just sat quietly and in my mind i was like oh man if he finds this out i'm dead I, and i still remember the moment it was a like my dad by the way was on a hunt to figure out what happened. Like he was, he was not going to let that go. And so I don't remember how many days later, but my dad is still chewing over like what happened. And we're in the car going to my grandmother's house and the conversation comes up between him and my mom. And they're in the front seat and they're driving and we're going down the road. He's just like, I don't know what happened. I don't, I, I just, and all of a sudden he paused and he just turned and he looked at me in the back seat and out of nowhere he went, you didn't do that, did you? And I just knew the gig was up, um, and I didn't lie to my dad. But I still remember the terror in my heart of the look on his face and the wrath I knew I was about to face. And uh, and ultimately, my dad, um, the wrath was, 
he went with me. I think he disciplined me, but then him and I went together and we put the bricks back. He made me work and learn some masonry and, and actually do the brickwork. My point to that is I still remember facing that wrath of my father, human father, for a very silly, dumb thing that I did. That is nothing. It's nothing compared to the wrath of God against evil on the earth, against wrongdoing. God is a just God. He's a loving God. And the Bible says He will pour His wrath out on the earth for sin. And you and I, His image bearers, have a choice. We can stand before God and suffer that wrath. Or we can trust in Jesus who atoned for our sins on the cross and on the cross placed Himself under the wrath of God on our behalf. The cup that Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me, was not the cross. It was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank for all who would believe. That's what it means that He's a propitiation. He's an atoning work for our sins. He redeems us. He bore our sins on the cross. He removed the burden from us and He placed it on His back. And He took God's wrath for all of those that He calls to come and believe and all who answer. Every person who's ever lived will one day stand before God. And the judgment will be us facing God's wrath, or Jesus will step in our place, speak to God and say, I covered them. They trusted me. He suffered physically, but he suffered spiritually. And he suffered once in your outline. He suffered once. Peter says that in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. One time was enough. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how in the Old Testament, priests would have to offer sacrifices for sin over and over and over and over again because they they didn't actually take sin away. But Jesus, by a single offering, perfected for all time those who believe. One time is enough. Christ died once. You are saved once. You don't have to repeat being saved over and over and over again. It is enough to believe and to trust. His sacrifice was sufficient. We repent of our sins and confess of our sins on an ongoing basis in agreement with God to stand before Him with a clear conscience, but we are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And the outcome to all of this, the outcome to the suffering of Jesus, the outcome was glory to God and reconciliation of His people. That was the outcome. Jesus said in John 17, right before he went to the cross, Father, I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, excuse me, 1 Peter 3, what we're reading today, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The end result of the suffering of Jesus was that he brought God glory And he brought people to know God. Love for the Father and love for others. 
the glory of God and the reconciliation of his church. And in your outline, this ministry, he now continues through us. This is what I really want us to understand. Jesus is still working. He still works to bring glory to God. He still works to bring people to himself. And he does it through us. He does it through his church. Peter says in that verse 18 that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus submitted himself to the power of sin and death. And it is powerful. Death is powerful. I think Josh said it a couple of weeks ago and talks about how you know, death is this great enemy. And the Bible asks the question, where, O oh, death, is your sting? But that the finality of that is coming in eternity. Death does sting. Death is the last great enemy that people face, and it is powerful. And Jesus submitted himself to that power. And then he put his foot on the throat of that power in the resurrection. He overcame it. He showed death, you have no ultimate power over me, and you have no ultimate power over anyone who believes in me. He triumphed. He was raised to new life by the activity of God in the spiritual realm that we can't see but we can experience partly now. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, verse 18 and 20, that God now through Christ, God through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So through Jesus, he reconciled us who would come to believe, and he gives over to us the ministry of reconciliation. And he describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 this way, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's it. It's the mission. Sometimes we ask the question, you know, what's the purpose of my life? What's God's will for me? And, and yes, he has a distinct will for you, he has certain gifts for you, certain places he wants you to live, certain people he wants you to be with, and he's going to maybe give you as a family, all of those things. But the will of God that we know for certain from the word is that if you are a believer, you are called to be an ambassador for Christ, and that through you, God will make his appeal to the lost. Through you, he will make his appeal to the world. And so that brings us back around to that life truth we started with. Christ is alive at the Father's hand today. And he is also living in us. He lives through us. And he makes his appeal to the world through our lives. It is a world that is threatening. It is a world that is angry. It is a world that is sinful. Loves what is evil. But God still loves that world, and He compels us, He controls us by His love that our words and our actions would show people Jesus. Even when we suffer for doing good. 
that we would suffer well the way Jesus did. And he brings people to himself that way. I hope we know this, but I really want us to get this. Because we're sitting here, we're, we're, we're right now, like you're sitting in the seats and we're at church and you're listening and, and I appreciate that and we're, we're thinking through the word together and we can hear this and we can say, yes, okay, that, that's right. Christ lives in me and I need to show people Jesus. Jesus is going to show himself through me and, and when I suffer for doing good, I, I, I need to remember this and suffer well. And then Monday comes, and you get hit by that first person who doesn't treat you well, who has something to say, who slanders you, who cuts you off in traffic, who angers you, that person who posts that thing that you vehemently disagree with, or who speaks those words that you vehemently hate, and you're face-to-face then with the reality of whether this word is impacting our lives or not. Jesus has called us to be His ambassadors. What an incredible honor. You know, even in our government, right, the honor that ambassadors have, if you live as an ambassador of one country and another country, you usually live really well. Like you have honor. The church, we are the ambassadors of the Son of God on the earth. Let that not be a little thing to us. All of this, then in context, brings us to what I called in your notes an uncertain reference. And I ask you this morning, do you like mysteries? Do you like things that you're not really sure about? Because we've got one for you today. We've got one for you in God's Word. Let's read verse 19 and 20 together again. Actually, I'll back up a little bit into verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight. Kind of track with Peter, right? We're going through this letter. We're listening to him preach to us. And then he gets to this part and we're like, wait, 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 what? (laughs) I feel like Peter, like we were going down this road and you just really veered left. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what just happened. Martin Luther, who is one of the great church reformers said that of these two verses, this is a wonderful text and perhaps the most obscure passage in the entire New Testament. So much so that Martin Luther said, I actually don't know that I know what this means. Uh, I, I would tell you this morning, there are multiple ways that theologians over time have understood or explained these two verses. Multiple ways. But most every one of those understandings of this mystery or those hypotheses that they make is some variation of three primary interpretations. So three primary ways that people interpret these two verses, and then you may have a lot of variants, if you will, of those interpretations. I'm going to give you those three this morning, and I'm going to explain to you the one that I am personally compelled by that I think is most likely and and, and I will do that telling you that I don't know for sure. 
And especially of two of these that I think are the most likely, if you were to come to me and say, I think you got that wrong, I think it's this one, I would not argue with you. I would love to hear your reasoning just to hear how you're wrestling with the passage, but I certainly wouldn't tell you that you are wrong. Well, here are these three primary ways that this mystery of what in the world is Peter talking about In verse 19 and 20, here's the primary ways they're interpreted. The first one, I labeled a rejected view. And my reason for that is because I think it is the least biblical of the three, and I just don't feel like it lines up with the Bible. It is the view that Jesus descended to the dead to offer them a second chance at salvation. That is one way that people interpret this passage. That between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended to a place of the dead, and there he preached to them a message of repentance that they might could be saved. That is the way I remember this passage when I was a kid. That is the way I remember it being taught. I remember thinking that must have been the greatest and easiest altar call in the history of the universe when Jesus was preaching to those who were in hell. My reason for saying that I don't think that's biblical is, for example, Hebrews 9, 27, that tells us it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That for every person on the earth, it is appointed that they die once, and then after that comes judgment. I also would point you to Luke 16, 26, when Jesus is telling a story about a rich man, excuse me, a rich man who went to a place of torment and Lazarus, a poor man who went to paradise and was with a father Abraham and, and, and God and the saints. And there the uh, rich man who is in torment asked if he could receive relief, even just the poor man Lazarus to come and dip his finger in some water and put it on his tongue to cool his tongue and Abraham responds and says, Between us is a great chasm that has been fixed. In order those who would pass from here to you, they they won't be able to do that, and none may cross from where you are to us. The way the Bible presents this is that after death, there is finality in what has happened in your life, that it is death and then judgment. I don't believe Jesus descending to offer people repentance fits in line with those passages. There's another variation of that, by the way, that speculates Jesus went to hell to experience suffering and complete his passion. I think that contradicts Jesus's words on the cross when he said it is finished as he died. So I don't believe that is the best view. I don't think it's the most biblical view. The other two, I think, are possible. Here are the other two possible interpretations of this mystery. The first one is this, that it is referring to a time in which Jesus descends to a place where fallen angels are held, and there he proclaimed to them his victory and their eternal condemnation. That it refers to a time Jesus descended to a place where fallen angels are being held, and at that time he proclaimed to them his victory, and he proclaimed to them his their eternal condemnation because of his victory. This is possible. This is many... Theologians believe that's what happened. Uh, and if you came to me and you said, David, I think that's I think that's what happened. I think that's the best interpretation. You might be right. And here's a couple of evidences of it. Genesis 6, 2 and 4, 2 through 4, talks about, and y'all just follow me for a moment and then we'll be done with this, but it talks about the sons of God taking daughters of men as their wives. And it references something called the Nephilim. 
are the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are this really debated group of people that lived on the earth. Some speculate that the Nephilim were children of fallen angels who married human women, had kids, and that the offspring was the Nephilim. And that's a mystery. Some people don't think that's what the Nephilim were, that they were just a mighty race of men. But either way, we do know that fallen angels are real, whether they are the Nephilim of Genesis 6 or Nephilim are the offspring of fallen angels in Genesis 6. We do know they exist. Jude, verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude, verse 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we know there are fallen angels that God is keeping somewhere under chains. So could Jesus, during that time, have made a visit in the spiritual realm to this place of holding? Yes. Some speculate he did that right after his death, before his resurrection. Some think he did it after his resurrection. And there he proclaimed to them, I am victorious. I have all authority. And you are eternally defeated. And that is a possible interpretation. It is not the one that I think is the most persuadable. I think, for me, the one that I think is most likely is the third one. And I will explain that to you and give you some reasons why I think it is the most likely interpretation. It was put forth by an early church father named Augustine, and it is this, that what Peter is talking about in these two verses is a reference to the Spirit of Jesus preaching a message of repentance through Noah in his day. And that that message was not believed... And that resulted in those who disobeyed or did not believe the message becoming the spirits in prison today. So you have to follow me a little bit on this one. But I'm going to paraphrase what Peter would be saying if this interpretation is true. What Peter would be saying in verse 19 and 20 is this. That Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive... In the Spirit, which means by the Spirit's activity in the spiritual realm. In which, meaning in that same Spirit, in that same spiritual realm, Christ went and proclaimed in the day of Noah to those who are now spirits in prison. And they are imprisoned there because they formerly did not obey when they were hearing the message being preached in the day of Noah, when God was being patient with them. It's a little odd language, but we do know what it's like to refer to someone in their current state for their whole life. You might say, Queen Elizabeth was born in... And I don't actually know when Queen Elizabeth was born. Allison, do you know? Early 1900s, right? You might say, Queen Elizabeth was born in this year. She wasn't queen when she was born, and you know that, and no one else thinks that you mean she was queen then. You're referring to her by the title you know her as currently, and you apply it to her whole life. Peter could be simply saying they are spirits in prison now, but at the time they were human beings living on the earth, and the Spirit of Christ was preaching to them through Noah. 
Here's why I think, for me, that is the best interpretation. And here's why I think it fits the context. If you're not interested in mysteries at all, I will explain it. why I think Peter put this here. Here's why I think that is, the, for me, the most likely interpretation. Noah is called in 2 Peter 2 a preacher of righteousness. Peter calls him that. He was a preacher of righteousness. He wasn't just a guy who built an ark. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls him a herald, a proclaimer, a preacher of righteousness. And we know that Peter has already told us in 1 Peter 1, 11, that the Spirit of Christ spoke through Old Testament saints. That the Spirit of Christ was in Old Testament saints, Old Testament prophets, speaking through them. So we know that Jesus did that. So Jesus may have been the one speaking through Noah as he was a preacher of righteousness. Another reason I think this fits well is because it references that these people or these spirits in prison and the time of Jesus' preaching was happening when the patience of God was waiting in the day of Noah. Angels are not offered the patience of God. Angels are not offered redemption. And so the patience of God would refer to people that God is being patient with. And I think the flood of Genesis shows us that it was God's judgment against sinful man, not against fallen angels. Therefore, I think the evidence for me is that that interpretation fits best mostly because of context. So follow me. If you lost track in all of that, just follow this part. This is why I think it fits in the context of what Peter's saying and wasn't just simply a veering off left where Peter got distracted for a moment and started talking about something else. If he's talking about Jesus preaching through Noah, remember that Noah was a man who had been made righteous by God and he was surrounded by an ungodly culture, a culture that was hostile to him and hostile to God. He was ridiculed, but he remained steadfast in his faith. And Jesus, working through him and through him, proclaimed that some might could be saved from the coming judgment. And God's judgment did come on the earth in the flood, and some were saved, although it was a minority of people. And those who were believed were carried safely through as God's people triumphed over evil. And I think that encouragement makes sense to what Peter is telling the church in his day and the church in our day. That you might be a minority. You might be ridiculed. Stay steadfast because Jesus is in you and He is preaching through you that many might come to know Him and be saved from that judgment. I think that fits best. But if you agree, for example, with the second one, perfectly okay with that. And I'm happy to talk about it. By the way, as an aside, if you're familiar with the creeds, if you're a fan of the creeds that have been written 
Um, for example, the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with that, it actually says that Christ descended to hell. Uh, I would say I'm a fan of creeds. I think that they are uh, very helpful to us to help us understand our faith. But they were not written by the Apostles, and they're not infallible. And there is some speculation that that line, Christ descended into hell, was actually added later and not in the original Apostles' Creed. So I'll just give you that as an aside. Let's end today with this gospel plea. More important than the mystery, I think. Verse 21 and 22. Peter writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you. That's a very interesting line, by the way. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here is our gospel plea for today. The good news for all time is that everything is subject to Jesus. Everything. He has all authority over angels and powers. Everything is subject to him. Humans, illness, evil. Everything is subject to Jesus. Your life is not out of control in Christ. It is not open to chance. It is not open to circumstance. Christ has authority. And He oversees His people and their lives. So three gospel pleas from that. First, follow Him. You are justified by your trust in Jesus. You are justified by your trust in Jesus. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You are found not guilty. We keep using this word justified. I want us to learn it well. You are declared not guilty before God because of your trust in Jesus, that He took God's wrath for you. If you trust Him for that, Every one of your sins is accounted for. Everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. Because Jesus has suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. Secondly, be baptized. Baptism displays salvation. Your, uh, baptism displays your salvation from judgment and is done as a crying out to God. Baptism displays your salvation from judgment and is done as a crying out to God. The Greek phrase that Peter uses there can be a little confusing when he says, baptism now saves you. But that is not in contradiction to what we just said, that you are justified or saved by faith. He goes on to say it doesn't save you because it cleanses dirt from the body. In other words, it's not that you are saved by this external act of washing. It saves you because if baptism is done rightly, it is done out of a heart that is crying out to God to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven of my sins. And baptism is done as a crying out to Jesus, save me. When you are baptized, Peter says it corresponds to Noah's flood. How is that? Because the flood waters in Genesis were judgment of God. When you are baptized, it's a picture that you are buried with Christ in judgment that He faced for sin. But then when you come out of the water, you are brought to new life. 
resurrected as Jesus was. I love this and I love how Peter put it. And I am compelled, I am compelled that we should see baptism as a crying out to God for forgiveness. The reality is, I think baptism doesn't complete salvation. Some denominations teach that. I don't believe that is the case. I believe that you are saved by grace through faith. I do think that salvation is very closely tied to our belief in Jesus, more so than perhaps we often teach in the Baptist church. We sometimes treat baptism as so symbolic that it's just kind of a good thing that you should do. I believe it is a work done by faith as a crying out to God for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have come to know Christ, you should be baptized. And then finally, look to Him. Look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Be baptized and look to Christ. He intercedes for you and gives you a share in His authority. He intercedes for you and gives you a share in His authority. Jesus is at the right hand of God, which means He is at the place of honor and power. And Romans 8.34 says, At God's right hand, He intercedes on your behalf. He prays for you. He prays to God for you. When you don't know what to pray, He is praying for you. And when you don't even know He is doing it, He is praying for you. That is the God that you serve. And you share in His authority. Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved, and you have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Which means that in this life, even now, you have a measure of of spiritual authority because of your union with Jesus. That spiritual authority is not for your personal benefit. We don't believe you use that spiritual authority to claim prosperity or goods for yourself, but it is used in the resisting of the enemy and the praying for other people and the belief and trust in Jesus to save you from calamity. Worship team is going to come up. We're going to end singing together today. As we do that, I want you to consider these gospel pleas. Chris, you can bring the lights down as we prepare to worship. Eric and Jeanette, if you guys wouldn't mind, would y'all just receive anyone who would like to receive prayer this morning in the building? Would you look at those gospel pleas and would you consider them? If you have never followed Jesus as Lord and trusted in Him to save you from the wrath of God, would you cry out to Him today and ask to be saved? You can do that where you are. You can do that from your seats. You can pray and ask Jesus to save you from sin. And if you want to talk to someone about that, I'll be over here. And you can let me know you'd like to talk about your relationship with Jesus. And we'll pray together and I'll get with you later today and we'll have that discussion. If you've never been baptized, would you consider being baptized? We'd love to do that here. You can talk to me about how that would be done. Would you look to Christ and trust that He intercedes for you? That He has all authority and your life is not up to chance. It's up to Him. This morning, if you would like to receive prayer for anything going on in your life, your relationship with Christ or just something that you're facing 
or maybe something directly related to the Word today, that you're struggling with how to suffer well, Eric and Jeanette will pray with you if you want to visit with them and, and they will pray. If you're on the live stream or the, uh, excuse me, the replay and you want to receive prayer, um, I'll put a number in the, in the chat on the website on the, uh, live stream or the comments and you can use that number to reach us and we'll pray for you. If you're willing and able to stand to worship, please do so. Let's cry out to Jesus. Let's run to Him. Pray where you are. Pray at the altar. Let's focus on His Word and let's respond in Jesus' name.